Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. Today's episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast is broken up into two parts. The first portion of the episode is a guest interview with Dr. Renska Locke, unpacking their recent publication in Sleep Advances entitled Physiological correlates of the Epworth sleepiness scale reveal different dimensions of daytime sleepiness. This guest interview is followed by three short audio clips from current Sleep Research Society members presenting their abstracts from the recent annual sleep meeting of the Associated Professional Sleep Societies in a data blitz-esque format. Timestamps are provided in the show notes to assist listeners with navigating to various sections of the episode. Additionally, those listening on Spotify should be able to click on the timestamps to conveniently jump to specific sections of the episode. To get us started, here is an orientation to the topic for the guest interview portion of today's episode. Excessive daytime sleepiness is an extremely common complaint, with prevalence estimates as high as 33% of the general population. Measures such as the multiple sleep latency test and maintenance of wakefulness test are relied upon to objectively capture clinically significant daytime sleepiness. Yet, these assessments are limited by their need to be performed in laboratory, as well as reliance upon specialized equipment and trained clinical staff. Subjective tools mitigate these limitations and have the benefit of being convenient and accessible. In 1991, Dr. Murray Johns published the paper in the journal Sleep, entitled, A New Method for Measuring Daytime Sleepiness the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which reported the initial psychometric properties of a novel self-report tool to capture daytime sleepiness severity. Since being published, this article has become one of the most highly cited articles in the sleep archive. So, what is the Epworth Sleepiness Scale? The Epworth Sleepiness Scale is an eight-item questionnaire that asks responders to rate their likelihood to fall asleep or doze off in real or imagined situations. Scores will range between 0 and 24, with an established threshold of scores greater than 10 indicating clinically significant excessive daytime sleepiness. Presently, the Epworth exists as one of the most widely utilized tools clinically and for research purposes. Notably, it is often recognized as the gold standard subjective measure for daytime sleepiness. There is a wealth of additional research that has evaluated the psychometric properties of the Epworth across different populations study designs, and measures of daytime sleepiness. Somewhat concerningly, there are reported issues with the Epworth's test-retest reliability. Additionally, it is unclear whether the Epworth is a valid tool for capturing daytime sleepiness since it poorly correlates with objective measures such as the multiple sleep latency test and maintenance of wakefulness test. As such, it is unclear what exactly the Epworth captures. This theme is the focus of today's episode, where I digitally sit down with Dr. Renska Locke to discuss the recent publication in Sleep Advances, entitled Physiological Correlates of the Epworth Sleepiness Scale Reveal Different Dimensions of Daytime Sleepiness. 
This investigation utilized machine learning analytics to examine the relationship between the upward sleepiness scale and 55 different sleep and medical variables in order to better understand the aspects of sleep and behavior that contribute to the upward sleepiness scale score. Before today's interview, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Renska Locke. Dr. Renska Locke is a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. During her doctorate degree, completed at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, she focused on studying light effects on human alertness, thermoregulation, and sleep. During her postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford University, she investigates the association between rest activity patterns and various physical and mental disorders, as well as the influence of light exposure on the timing of the rest activity cycle. Dr. Locke is a board member of the Society for Light Treatment and Biological Rhythms and Trainee Education Advisory Subcommittee member for the Sleep Research Society. Dr. Locke has won numerous prizes in the field of human lighting and sleep research, including Best Dissertation in the Field of Behavioral and Cognitive Sciences for the year 2021, Best Open Access Publication, Merit Award Winner Based on Scientific Excellence from the Society for Research on Biological Rhythms, the Trainee Innovator Award from Stanford University, and Young Investigators Research Forum Scholarship from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. So, without further ado, let's dive into today's interview with Dr. Renska Locke. All right, listeners, and I now have the pleasure of digitally sitting down with Dr. Renska Locke. Dr. Locke, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss your research. We'll start with this. How are you doing today? I am. Uh, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm doing really well, actually. Outstanding. Well, uh, this is going to be released uh, post the sleep conference, uh, and I had the pleasure of actually meeting you at the sleep conference, and I can attest that, uh, albeit uh, vibrant in the digital format, you were an awesome uh, conversation in person. So thank you for that lunch conversation. <laughs> thank you as well. It was amazing. And the fried chicken wasn't so bad either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did have to wait a while, but uh, definitely the fried chicken lived up to its name. I think it was Horace's fried chicken in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, if I remember correctly. Shout out to Horace, not a sponsor of the show. Uh, <laughs> so now, uh, Dr. Locke, Renska, I, I gave the listeners an introduction to your background. Um, but I still think it's always useful to start these episodes off with you just sharing a little bit more about yourself. So we'll start with a, a few orientation questions. Um, can you please tell us about your journey to this stage in sleep and circadian research? Yeah, absolutely. And I think my journey was kind of a little bit unusual because I, I once took a course um, while studying in the Netherlands, and it was a course in chronobiology and sleep. And there I met um, some of the people that were to become my supervisors later on. Basically, I took the course and I was so fascinated by everything going on in terms of sleep and, and circadian rhythms. And once I had finished up my master's, because in the Netherlands you do a bachelor's and then a master's, I was kind of like, yeah, I kind of like the sleep stuff, so, so let's see if I can get a PhD in it. And I applied, got accepted, and that's how my PhD journey started. Um, it was very much into the, the basic chronobiology, um, so very much basic principles of, of sleep, alertness, thermoregulation, and, and light effects. And um, when I was done, I was kind of doubting, like, do I want to continue in academia? Do, do I want to do something else? And 
then this amazing opportunity at Stanford came along. And now I'm actually transitioned, now I've transitioned a bit more into the sleep field and doing a bit more translational work. So very much looking into more applied stuff of, of sleep. So how does sleep in the lab translate to sleep in the field and, and things like that. So I transitioned a bit, um, but it's been a great journey. And I know people usually, you know, complain or have a negative outlook on their PhD, but my PhD experience was actually amazing. And yeah, I'm not sure if I would do it again, but it's close enough at least. <laughs> well, maybe we'll edit that part out because we don't want to give any per perspective students any false uh, ideas that the PhD life is easy. No, I joke. Uh, it's amazing to hear that you had a, a great journey. I too feel uh, similarly blessed that it's been a... Um, a worthwhile ride, but I also think, I don't know if I would do it again. Uh, and yeah, it is always great to hear people's stories as they often start very similar with, I took a class and it's often that like one teacher or mentor that steers you in this direction. Then it's like, whoa, this sleep and circadian stuff's really cool. So I think we, we in the field share a lot of that. Um, when you're not progressing the frontier of sleep and circadian research, what do you like to do in your spare time? Yeah, I actually, now that I live in a beautiful and sunny California, <laughs> I'm super into the outdoors. So I, I go out uh, camping, hiking, backpacking, anything that has to do with the outdoors. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I do to regenerate my brain and to not think about science for a bit. Definitely test how to sleep in the wild, how I sleep while I camp. Um, yeah. Very awesome. And I know that, um, you know, Ken Wright at UC Boulder used to do some amazing work bringing people out into the natural environment to reset rhythms, maybe address some underlying disorders. And it's, it's almost like if we abide by the natural environment, uh, it may make sleep and our wake time actually a little bit easier. So I'm very jealous of the individuals in California that have that wonderful weather generally year round. Uh, as here in Madison, Wisconsin, we don't necessarily. Uh, but if you weren't a sleep and circadian researcher, what career would you have? Yeah, I think that's a tricky one. Um, I'm not sure because I think now I'm so ingrained to be a sleep researcher. Um, but maybe I would have done something with, with this passion for the outdoors. Maybe I would have become like a park ranger or like a wilderness guide or something, something cool like that uh, and a way to travel around the world. Very cool. Uh, I, I, I share that interest quite a bit. The more outdoor time, the better. The more travel, the better. Uh, my sister's actually an organic farmer, and there are some days I wake up and mm -hmm. I'm like, maybe that life would be uh, more fulfilling and enjoyable and certainly relaxing. But we find ourselves in the sleep and circadian research domain, and I don't really have any complaints about that either. Do you? Me neither. No, I love it. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, after those hard-hitting questions... We're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to play a little keyword association. So in keeping the theme of science, instead of word association, we're just going to have keywords. And I just want you, Dr. Locke, to say the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, again, similar to our last episode, listeners, Dr. Locke has not seen these list of words yet. Uh, so this is hot off of the, the cognition, if you will. Um, so first word here, Dr. Locke, what do you think of when I say science? Beautiful. I like that. How about sleepiness? Complicated. I would agree. How about research? Complicated and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and machine learning? Um, complex but fancy. I like it. 
And last one here, physiologic correlate. Um, the body. Fair enough. You've heard it here first. That's the keyword association from Dr. Locke. And that'll transition nicely into the actual kind of meat and potatoes or quinoa and berries, however you want to spin it for this guest interview. Where we're going to focus on your recent article published in Sleep Advances entitled Physiologic Correlates of the Epworth Sleepiness Scale Reveal Different Dimensions of Daytime Sleepiness. So initially, listeners, I'm just going to ask Dr. Locke to provide a 10,000-foot view of the investigation before we take a deeper dive into the weeds of the methodology, the findings, implications, and other aspects of the investigation. So kicking us off here, Dr. Locke, um, can you please describe to the listeners what fueled you to perform this research? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the nice, nice studies. It's one of the nice studies that's kind of on the intersection between academia and the field, because this is really, you know, we see it more and more. Things happen in the field that do not necessarily have like an academic or a scientific background. So I think for the Epworth sleepiness skill, it's, it's one of those where clinicians often use it as an indication of daytime sleepiness. It's often used actually as, as a cutoff, right? Like an, an Epworth sleepiness scale score too high indicates excessive daytime sleepiness. But it has never really been investigated what the underlying mechanisms are. So it's really nice to implement a scale like this that's readily available and that you can give your patient and it's going to be done in like a couple of minutes even. But what does it really mean? And um, I think using skills like these, it can lead to, I wouldn't say false conclusions, but it can definitely steer you in the wrong direction because if we don't know what a scale actually measures, how can you conclude anything from, from a scale? Well said. And I think that's been... Uh... I think one of the concerns about the Epworth for some time now is, is it a valid representation of daytime sleepiness? And that opens up a whole can of worms of what is daytime sleepiness too, right? Is it yeah. a singular construct? Is it Does it have multiple dimensions? All sorts of questions. Um, yeah. Now, when you approach this investigation, what did you expect? Did you expect the Epworth to correlate with anything physiologically? Or were you more in the null hypothesis camp? I think I was a bit more in the null hypothesis camp, just because I've worked with daytime sleepiness and alertness for so long now, and I've definitely, you know, encountered many issues and, and errors with it, and it's definitely not so easily capturable as, as that I thought when I started off in the field. So I definitely thought it would be more tricky, um, that it wouldn't be so easy to find a physiological basis. But in the end, I don't think that's such a bad thing, because also this is information that's useful even though it might not be the information that clinicians would like it's still useful information and i think that's important to keep in mind perfect you know maybe it's not the entire puzzle but a piece of the puzzle if you will uh, exactly. and of course being an eight item measure it's quick to administer and it yeah. provides some insight so it definitely has some utility there um, and going about this investigation to kind of explore the relationships between all these variables you were able to compile in the Epworth, what what sort of design and, and relevant methodology did you utilize? Yeah, so I mean, we, we chose for um, um, a readily available data set. So the one thing that you, you want to have when you work with machine learning algorithms is a big data set. Um, that's just the only way these, these um, algorithms truly work well. So we were looking for a big data set that had at least the Epworth sleepiness skill 
and hopefully also lots of other variables that we could toss in the mix. Uh, polysomnography was, of course, very important to us because, I mean, that's the usual suspect, right? Like, if you sleep poorly at night, then your daytime sleepiness must be bad. Um, so we look for a data set with uh, the average sleepiness scale, PSG, and then, you know, any other variable that was in there would be very welcome. So we ended with the sleep heart health study, which is like a readily available um, uh, database. And I mean, it's it's amazing what kind of information hides in that data set. Yeah, and I, I encourage the listeners to go check out the paper themselves. But it, it was fascinating. You almost had like an even split of medical and sleep variables, if you will. And I will yeah. say having the PSG variables is, is certainly a major strength of this investigation. But on top of that, just the notion of having history of pulmonary disease, history of sleep apnea, diastolic blood pressure, body mass index, marital status, all these different things, history of diabetes. I think it was a really comprehensive way and a kind of a creative way of looking at all the factors that could be contributing to your F-worth. Um, yeah. So what did you find? So in the end, it's, I guess the results are kind of disheartening in that way because we included all these variables, like a huge list. And in the end, the explained variance of, so the variation in upper sleepiness scale was only explained by approximately 10% of all those variables that were in there. That basically means that neither like all these PSG variables, nor any of the demographic variables, the history, diseases, um, any of that really captures the variation in upper sleepiness scale. Yeah, that was somewhat surprising. I, I think the exact uh, quote from the discussion is, even with 55 variables, only 7.15% to 10% of the variance of the upward sleepiness scale scores could be explained. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just, that sums up so well how little we understand of this. Like, and also that our concept of sleepiness, it's not the same as what happens, happens in the body. Obviously, our, our main suspect was like um, um, sleep, so sleep variables, sleep onset latency, sleep quality. And none of that correlated well with daytime sleepiness. So it really indicates that asking someone about their perception of falling asleep is very different from what happens in the body and from the objective markers, if you will, um, that we can measure in the body. Complicated, for sure. Um, and you did find that a variable, and, and you'll have to help me here kind of understand the various levels of analysis that you conducted here um, and kind of the novelty of machine learning algorithms that you utilize. I think that was one of the um, kind of gaps that you were filling in here was using uh, two kind of compatible machine learning strategies that hadn't been employed previously. Uh, but a singular variable, the frequency of not getting enough sleep, which was, I think, a self-report response, not yeah. necessarily objectively captured, but just the the someone's rating of how frequently they were not getting enough sleep, that consistently emerged as the strongest predictor. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing, right? Because we we give the model all these objective variables, all these PSG variables, all these things that got measured in the body. And in the end, the one thing that predicts daytime sleepiness the best is the self-reported frequency of not getting enough sleep. So it's really it's really indicating that there's something different going on between self-report and what, what happens in the body. Um, and I will have to say, like, the one, one caveat of that is that, yes, the frequency of not getting enough sleep was the biggest predictor, but even that predicted, like, I think approximately 10% of the variation. So even that is not a lot, of course. Yeah, uh, certainly not going to fully explain or even come close to it. 
yeah. but for the sake of this study, it emerged the strongest predictor. Uh, and I think that's a nice, nice uh, job here by both of us to kind of set the stage here for a little bit deeper discussion. Um, so let's dive a little bit farther into the weeds. Um, as is going to be probably a theme across many of these episodes, there are limitations to every scientific study. There's limitations to every sample or data set we use. Uh, obviously, you approach this looking for uh, kind of the inclusion of the Epworth polysomnography variables in a data set, a large, robust data set. And that's where this open access data set um, fit the criteria there. But, you know, it didn't really provide a lot of lens into the habitual characteristics of sleep health and variation longitudinally, um, which given from my perspective, the notion that kind of the Epworth being maybe more of a trait-like sleepiness rather than say like the Karolinska sleepiness scale, which may be more of a state-like sleepiness, yeah. you know, being more trait-like does it make sense to maybe explore more kind of longitudinal variables of sleep quality, timing, those types of things? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's the biggest caveat of this this study design. Um, I mean, there are no data sets out there that have multiple nights of PhD combined with multiple assessments of daytime sleepiness. I think that would be like the holy grail, right? Because then we get a way better... Um, concept of what daytime sleepiness exactly is. Like polysomnography collected over one night can be really susceptible to, you know, one-off features. First of all, the, the people are sleeping with EEG, so with the electrodes attached to their head, which can already interfere with sleep. And there are so many things like on a common night, you might not experience any sleep disturbances, but on a night, something might happen and it, you know, might significantly interfere with your sleep and the sleep polysomnography. And of course, that's a data set like this is really susceptible to things like that. So in the end, if we would, if the data set would be available where you have multiple nights of EEG or polysomnography combined with multiple assessments of either um, um, short-term sleepiness or long-term sleepiness, so the efforts, um, that would be a really nice addition. Yeah, definitely. But again, nothing's going to be perfect, right? Like yeah. even if we try and use our um, generally relied upon Acta watches or actigraphy to longitudinally measure sleep, then we lose, lose the resolution into um, stages of sleep. And, you know, one thing that I really found fascinating about um, the variables you collected from polysomnography was the transitions between different stages that are often not captured in our generally utilized sleep continuity measures. Uh, yeah. So transitions between, say, like REM and N2 and N1 or N3 to N2 or N1, those aren't going to show up in WASO or sleep efficiency. Uh, and those are often dysregulated in disorders of excessive daytime sleepiness, such as narcolepsy. So I th found that very fascinating, but we're obviously not going to be able to capture that with actigraphy. Yeah. Um, do you think an approach would be to try and leverage, say, like ambulatory at home polysomnography? Or do you think kind of the novel wearable devices that purport the ability to provide information on sleep stages, maybe? Uh, the next route to go from here? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm strongly leaning towards like portable EEG devices just because, I mean, you just listed the caveats that come with the wearables. I think we all love the wearables because they offer a lot of opportunity and possibility, but they come with severe limitations and we, we cannot forget that. Like, yes, the sleep staging is not reliable as of right now. Um, usually the sleep onset latency is like a big issue. Um, there, there are more issues with it. And I think if you 
really reliably want to to investigate these underpinnings of these questionnaires you you cannot have such big caveats um, on the other hand i think for in terms of portable eeg a lot of advancements are being made i know there are now the headbands already that you know maybe only have a couple of electrodes but at least give at least give you a better insight in the sleep staging than the wearables right now and i'm sure there's going to be more um, advancements in the wearable sorry in the eeg um, field that's going to make at-home EEG much easier. So I'm kind of hoping for those developments to come through, and then questions like these will be much easier to to answer. Well said, and and I fully agree that the devices currently in the commercial domain uh, have utility, but they're not quite there yet. And it's always been a surprise yeah. to me, Renska. I know we're getting kind of tangential here, but the fact that there hasn't been the expansion to like a self-applied EEG electrode that can yeah. Bluetooth connect to these devices, at least to give some uh, resolution to EEG that may resolve some of the sleep onset latency difficulties they have, give us more accuracy into sleep classification, things like that. Um, yeah. Maybe that's yeah, the future. I, I mean, I completely agree. And the thing, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to work in a field where people usually have an, an endogenous curiosity for sleep, right? Like if you, if you meet someone in the bar or on the street and they ask what you do and you say you're a sleep scientist, I don't know, but for me, like almost every time it's like, oh no, because I have these sleep issues and this, this, like there's a lot of intrinsic curiosity from, from humans, let's say. So I think if something like this would be out there where you only have to attach two or three electrodes to your skull, I think everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people would be inclined to do so. I would agree with that. Um, so we touched upon some potential other variables that were kind of, I wouldn't say missing in this data set, but would have been more desirable if they were available. Um, to kind of close down that discussion there, given what you know now from these findings um, and kind of other information, are there any other features specifically outside of the longitudinal data that you kind of wish were available in the original sleep heart health study? Yeah, I think it would have been really nice if there were what some more information about the perceived quality of sleep. We're looking more and more into the relationship between polysomnography and polysomnography and perceived sleep quality. We also know that that's not the best, but I'm truly wondering if the perceived quality of sleep might be a better predictor for daytime sleepiness, for example. Um, so I think that would have been a nice, nice addition. But other than that, I don't have any complaints because I know how much data and how much time and effort went into this data set. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no slight against their design and, and efforts. They absolutely. did a great job. Absolutely, course, right? absolutely, yes. But I love what you said there because I feel like I'm getting this general theme maybe that maybe the Epworth is more capturing kind of a psychological uh, sleepiness rather than yeah. a physiological sleepiness. Is that kind of where your brain's at right now? Yeah, that's exactly where, where my brain is at. And I think the big question then becomes like, what is important to us, right? Like. Either it means that the things we pick up physiologically, so the things we pick up with EEG, are not representing what's going on subjectively, or what's going on subjectively is not picking up what's going on objectively. So either we have to adjust the way we measure things, or we have to stop asking people because they just don't, they don't coincide. So they give different sorts of information almost, in my opinion. And I think I agree with that. Um, now, again, we're dependent upon, uh, the sample characteristics in just about every one of our kind of designs we do. And this one you used was a, a very robust, large data set, I think kind of um, young or more middle-aged adults for the most part, 
uh, generally fairly healthy. I think I even saw like average total sleep time was somewhere around like seven to 7.25 hours, something like that, um, which is uh, a little bit higher than I think the general population uh, typically. Uh, but what I was kind of interested in, and, and with your kind of advanced statistical brain, you'll far surpass my ability to uh, discuss this. And maybe it's a, a nonsensical question, but uh, I was looking at kind of the average Epworth within the actual sample itself in the supplementary table. And I believe it was about 7.6, which is, um, you know, three and a half or so points below kind of the cutoff for excessive daytime sleepiness. And the standard deviation was 4.35. Uh, you did report that 24.3% had scores above the threshold for significant excessive daytime sleepiness. Um, I will say that 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 cutoff threshold has been challenged a little bit late as far as like uh, its predictive value. But I was just curious in general, um, do you think that more variation in the Epworth sleepiness scale, like a higher proportion of the sample that had elevated scores more in the 16, 18, something in that range could have kind of led to different findings here at all? Yeah, so I mean, I think we deliberately didn't didn't do a separate analysis on the cutoff point of above 10, because I mean, it's it's highly problematic right now. Um, like we don't know what it entails exactly. So to make an arbitrary cutoff at 10 is just like, from a scientific perspective, like we don't know how to handle that, right? So we decided to throw everything at once. And of course, we, we did take a look at what happens if you do use the cutoff and the explanatory value doesn't increase whatsoever. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but we deliberately chose not to report on it because we just don't want to, yeah, how do you say, we don't want to reinforce that kind of idea that a cutoff point of 10 is, is a good marker because in essence, we don't know, like we have no idea. Yeah. And we just draw these arbitrary lines in the sand sometimes. Um, I guess kind of differently said, do you think like, more variance in the Epworth across your sample could have allowed you to detect uh, a differential effect? It's possible, but it's not as if the variance was too small. I think um, there was a good spread, and maybe not so much in excessive daytime sleepiness, but overall there was a good spread. So I don't think if you get even more spread, the, um, the results would have differed tremendously. I think with the sample size of this, this amount, and of course maybe it's different, you know, in younger adults, like, those questions always remain, right? It's, it's, yeah, this only says something about this specific population, but I think this population is a, is a good representation of the general public. And yeah, I don't think it would have changed tremendously if the variance would have increased. Yeah, well said. And I, I think that what you just said there to close down was the kind of big point there is uh, it's representative here, these findings of the general public, right? Instead of focusing on a, a clinical disordered sample. And maybe perhaps we would see different findings, general public versus kind of a clinical sample of, I don't know, central disorders of hypersomnolence or something like that. Uh, yeah. But this is a study that focuses on the general public there. Uh, makes total sense. And, you know, I, I love that you're taking an advanced analytics perspective here with machine learning. Um, I have not fully educated myself on the technique yet, so I will not uh, showcase myself as a fool by trying to describe it, but more or less with your advanced skill set, you know, thinking about the design and future designs here, um, have you thought about other kind of advanced techniques or creative analytics that could be employed in these kind of um, investigations? Yeah, I think so. And it's funny that you say you're not an expert because I think up to a year and a half ago, I had not really looked into machine learning either. 
But then the pandemic came along and uh, the lab was closed for nine months and you have to come up with alternative solutions and machine learning came along and uh, like the the internet is amazing because everything is described in so much detail so i'm convinced that anybody can use machine learning algorithms right now um so we use random forest and lesser regression models which is still relatively simple machine learning but i think definitely advancements advancements may lie in in the deep learning algorithms um but that's that's stuff that's above my head right now and maybe forever <laughs> I feel you on that front. Well, thankfully, there are some brilliant people with some good time on their hands to dig deep into those weeds and advance yeah. our field on that front. Um, why don't we maybe close down the discussion on kind of the actual nuances here uh, with a, a question that maybe will uh, get us into a bit of trouble. No, I, I say that in jest, right? Um, but thinking about the future role and use of the app board, I think we both agree that there are limitations and uh, it's unclear what it actually is capturing on the physiological level, or is it really capturing psychological? Is it trait? You know, still unclear there, but we both see that there's a role. Um, yet we do know there are reliability shortcomings outside of just the validity shortcomings. So given kind of your expertise in the Epworth here, what do you see as a, a good role for the Epworth currently? Um, and, and kind of in the future, do we need a new metric? Is this metric useful? How would you go from there? Yeah, I think this is one of the most difficult questions you can ask because, uh, first of all, it's really difficult to change traditions, right? The Epworth is being used in clinics all the time, and it's, it's going to be hard to change. Um, so as of right now, I also don't know if the need is for change, just to cut it out completely. But all I would say is just be really cautious about the way we interpret this. Like, we have to understand that we don't understand the underlying basis we we don't understand what's happening in the body that's translating to these scores so how informative it truly is we don't know and for that reason especially if you know in clinics it's being used in combination with other measures such as the, such as the, the mslt um bsg in general or other things yeah i think my tendency would be to rely more on those than what the efforts tells us or just treat them as separate separate indicators and not trying to combine them into one outcome because they just they measure something different. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. And, and I see it, you know, principally as a nice little screening tool that can potentially shed insight into um, a more granular problem in their sleep health, whether it be an underlying disorder or insufficient sleep, whatever it may be. So it's a nice catch all in some ways. Um, yeah. But yeah, it should not stand alone in our ability to dissect someone's daytime sleepiness severity. And I think there's a wealth of literature out there that kind of substantiates that. Um, yeah. And especially with this, this cutoff of 10, right? Like, I don't really, I don't even completely understand where it comes from, but it's weird. It's, it's strange, in my opinion, to, to dichotomize it like, oh, no, people below 10 are just completely fine and people above 10 they have excessive deep daytime sleepiness to me that doesn't really make sense on a scale that's basically a continuum yeah I fully agree there and i think there is recognition now that not just in sleep and but across all aspects of mental and physical health like thresholding things has its utility in many ways for conversation and billing and so on and so forth but when it comes to our statistical analyses viewing things often as more continuous and spectrum based uh, seems to have much more benefit rather than drawing these kind of arbitrary lines in the sand at, at certain times. 
And you're right. Sometimes it is about, um, you know, challenging things that have been existing for so long, just the, the yeah. wealth, the history, the connection the Epworth has, um, you know, I, I'm with you. It's, it's longstanding in that, that arbitrary greater than 10. It's not necessarily arbitrary, right? There's some statistics, statistics behind it, but there's other thoughts that 16 is a better threshold. So who knows, but it's hard to change. Yeah. It's hard to teach an old dog, new tricks, right? Uh, and the I, field yeah. really likes the Epworth. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, this, this does indicate the bigger problem in which, you know, academia and, and the clinic is still very much separated from each other. And I think it would be really good if we can form more definitive connections because stuff happens in the clinic that doesn't necessarily have a scientific basis. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes we also investigate stuff that's not really an issue in the clinic, but we think is an issue from our, you know, biological or scientific perspective. And in the end, I think if those lines become a bit, a bit better or a bit more pronounced, um, we'll have a more effective way of working on things like these. Harmony. It's the way of the future. Uh, I love it. Now, Dr. Locke, uh, we touched upon some of this already while kind of diving deeper into the weeds, but given the findings, the investigation, some of the limitations of the data set, all those types of things, um, what research questions kind of arose or rather where kind of should research head to advance this line of inquiry, maybe specific to the Epworth, but other metrics as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that the concept of daytime sleepiness is becoming more and more interesting. I think, you know, when you look 50, 60 years back, of course, we had the, the Karolinska sleepiness scale, at some point the Stanford sleepiness scale, and then the Epworth sleepiness scale so with three different scales to assess daytime sleepiness. And we don't understand any of them, basically. Like some of them correlate somehow with some of the metrics or some of the output variables, but definitely not all. Um, and we, t we touched upon it a bit earlier. I think really the, the strength is going to lie in, in longitudinal data. So, uh, sorry, cross-sectional data. So data collected in the same individual over multiple time points, just to get a better grip of what daytime sleepiness exactly is. And you know what? In truth, it might be that daytime sleepiness is something that we can't really measure by nighttime EEG. Because yes, sleep is what happens at night and it can predict maybe how tired you are during the day. But how tired you are during the day is not necessarily how sleepy you are during the day. And I think that's an important distinguishment that we that we have to keep and have to be aware of. Yeah, well said. It's it's complicated for sure. I'm, um, yeah. And to close down today's episode, I just first off want to thank you, Dr. Renska Locke, for finding time to discuss this investigation and share your wisdom with our audience. Um, if you'd like to, Dr. Locke, uh, do you want to plug Twitter or anything like that where listeners can find you if they have any other questions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm on everything by now, I think. <laughs> so Twitter, I think, is at Locke. Renske. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn under the same name. Um, yeah, I have the Stanford profile, ResearchGate. Um, just find my first and last name and I'm sure I'll pop up somewhere. <laughs> She's everywhere. Uh, and before I go, I do have a final question. Arguably the most intimidating, uh, hard-hitting question of this entire podcast. Are you ready? I believe in you. Oh, <laughs> I guess. All right. If you were afforded unlimited funding to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic, then what would you investigate? 
Yeah, this is the, the most difficult one. I thought you were going to ask me about my career trajectory, which is the, the second worst question you can get, I think. Um, if I have unlimited funds, I would, I mean, I think it's kind of boring because it, it came up multiple times, but I definitely would invest in multiple EEGs in the same person over, over periods of time, um, assess daytime sleepiness, but also subjective sleep quality, basically create this, this huge data set that has everything that we can wish for so we can all use the data for, for better. Well, I want you to create that data set because I think it would be <laughs> remarkably rich for so many questions, whether it be better understanding of the progression of neurodegenerative diseases, whatever it may be. Uh, and I'll yeah. just shamelessly plug, come out to the University of Wisconsin and, and come participate and join the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort and try and get all those things plugged in to make that data set even more robust. But I will say, Dr. Locke, it's been a true pleasure. Again, uh, I preferred our in-person interaction, but this digital one was uh, also very enriching. Uh, so thank you so much for taking time of your day to speak with me uh, and for sharing your wisdom with the audience. Uh, and with that, this closes down the interview. Thank you very much, Dr. Locke. Thank you for having me. And now we have reached the portion of the podcast showcasing three abstracts from the recent annual sleep meeting of the Associated Professional Sleep Societies, which took place in Charlotte, North Carolina this year. I must thank Dr. Amy Bender, Brooke Mason, and Odalis Garcia for submitting these abstracts for inclusion in the Sleep Research Society podcast episode. Perhaps next year, we can devote an entire episode to this premise. But for now, without further delay, here is some more Sleep and Circadian Science. My name is Dr. Amy Bender. I'm the Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra, also an Adjunct Assistant Professor of Kinesiology at University of Calgary, and a long-time standing SRS member. So thank you for what you do on getting the word out on sleep research. The abstract I'm going to talk about today is a polysomnographic marker of sleep quality using odds ratio product are associated with insomnia symptoms in a dose response relationship. And we're looking at uh, ORP, so it's a metric of sleep quality, which microanalyzes the EEG with fast Fourier transform and power analysis, which is then converted into an ORP value of 0 to 2.5, with lower values indicating deeper sleep and higher values indicating full wakefulness. And so what we did in this study is we asked 416 participants who were doing a type 2 study, so doing PSG in the home, uh, we asked them about their insomnia symptoms. So did they have trouble falling asleep? Did they have trouble staying asleep? Or did they wake up earlier than planned? And what we did is we looked at what their ORP looked like on that particular night and their overall insomnia symptoms. And we found that those who didn't report insomnia symptoms had the best sleep quality looking at ORP in this EEG metric versus those who had more symptoms. So it was a dose response relationship. So as the number of symptoms increased, so did their uh, ORP value, which was indicative of poorer sleep quality. So we're interested in potentially further research could explore if maybe treatment interventions aimed at reducing ORP and improving sleep quality might be helpful to treat insomnia. <laughs> 
Hi, my name is Brooke Mason, and I'm currently transitioning out of a clinical research coordinating position and into being a full-time doctoral student. For our abstract titled, Work Hard, Sleep Hard, Recreational Activity and Sleep Duration, we wanted to analyze NHANES data to assess potential relationships of self-reported sleep duration and amount of activity per day. We categorize sleep duration as recommended to include those with seven to nine hours, short sleep as less than seven, and long sleep as greater than nine. Activity was self-reported and divided into vigorous or moderate intensity. We found that compared to those that obtained the recommended amount of sleep, those that reported short sleep duration demonstrated around 9 more minutes of vigorous recreational activity, while long sleepers had 11 more minutes of vigorous recreational activity. Both short and long sleepers reported 9 and 8 additional minutes of moderate recreational activity than those that obtained the recommended amount of sleep. The relationship between sleep duration and exercise is likely bidirectional. Our results indicate that both short and long sleepers exercise longer on a daily basis than those obtaining the recommended 7-9 to nine hours of sleep a night. This relationship could be attributed to a compensation for unhealthy sleep patterns. I did want to take a moment to thank those in the Sleep and Health Research Lab at the University of Arizona, especially Dr. Grenner, for making these analyses possible. I would also like to thank the SRS podcast team for allowing me to present some of our work. Please reach out to me on Twitter at Brooke underscore Mason 2 if you have any questions or would like to chat. Thank you again. Hello, I'm Odalis Garcia, a psychology PhD student at North Dakota State University. I love sleep research because of its applicability and potential to help so many people. My work on the project, The Role of Parental Absence and Parental Conflict on Child and Adolescent Sleep, began because I wanted to know a little bit more about the impact of stressors that affect someone at a young age when they are more malleable and sensitive to environmental exposures. Therefore, considering the bioecological model, it becomes clear that parent and family interactions most proximately impact a child's well-being. And in conducting a literature search, I realized that there is a growing amount of research into the impact of parental divorce or conflict on children's sleep, but not so much so into the impacts of parental death on sleep. I hypothesized that children from intact families would have better sleep over those who experience parental death because they experienced the stress of parental absence but that children who experience parental divorce would have worse sleep overall because although they usually experience parental absence to a lesser extent, they often also experience parental conflict as well. I then tested this hypothesis in the terminal longitudinal study of 1,528 intelligent children from California that were assessed every two to five years from the 1920s through their deaths. We conducted cross-sectional analyses and found that parental divorce was significantly associated to worse sleep quality. However, this was the only significant result, so we found some but little evidence supporting this cross-sectional association. I hope to continue with this research question in the future and determine if there were time-limited effects or if there are potential sensitive periods for these stressors on sleep. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content, or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burrows and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers, as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Ruloff Hutt 
for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.